Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd love to have you take out your Bibles. If, uh, if you have them with you, either digital or print, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Matthew 9. Man, it's been a good morning just to, to be together. Um, I don't know if you are ever in this space without people. I, you know, sometimes, you know, throughout the week, I'm here, and I get to uh, be in this space, and there's nobody else here. You know, I'm here by myself. And there's something interesting uh, about a church gathering area, a sanctuary, um, as we often call it, uh, is that there's nothing special about it when it's empty. Isn't that interesting? Like, this space is not sacred in the sense that God doesn't live in the space. In, in Acts uh, 17, the Apostle Paul says, God does not live in temples or buildings that are built by human hands. But there's something special that happens when God's people gather. Like when we come into this space with hearts of worship and, and, and tuning our hearts to, to God and to his presence as we have this morning, that God actually, he fills the space because he fills this space, like within us. So um, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful thing. And um, we are... We're in this summer teaching series where we're looking at uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to actually cover the same text we did last week. And so I'll explain a little bit more about that here in a minute, but we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 uh, to 8. And how about if we, uh, words are on the screen, let's just read this, let's read it together as a church family. Here we go. Jesus stepped into a boat crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority man. So this text, um, we, we looked at last week, and if you weren't here last week, that's, that's okay. But as I was, um, you know, I kind of had a schedule, and, and the schedule was, hey, to move on to, to the, next, uh, the next story, the next text, and I just kind of kept having this nudge that, like, I think there's more, there's more we're supposed to cover in this, and I, I don't know if anybody else has it. Like, I have this kind of internal clock that says, like, you need to move on. Like, you need to, there's almost a pace you have to keep up with. And you need a fresh word, need, um, you know, to just move on to the next thing. And I was listening to this song while I was, um, while I was working in, in Dalton, Ohio, close to where we live. And the song, I'd never heard it before, but it was by Emily Nequest, or Linquest. And she said, and the, the song says, um, my beloved, who is rushing you? And, like, I felt like that was a word for me, to, to just, like, who, who is rushing me? Who is driving the pace of my life? Because I feel like um, oftentimes we, we feel like 
We just have to sort of keep up a given pace. And most of the time, for most of us, I would guess that pace is pretty frantic. Right? Like, we just feel kind of driven by this internal sense of, I have to move on to the next thing. And Carmen and I, a couple of years ago, actually when we were thinking of moving, um, feeling like we were called to move from Kansas to Ohio, my spiritual director helped us name our core values. Like, just what are the core values of the things that God uh, is doing in us and we want to hold on to even in the midst of a big transition? And one of those values was pace. Like, we feel like it's really important for us. Um, there, there are times when you, you run, like the pace, keeping up with the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, is, is, it's a fast pace, and you got to move, and you got to run, and, and that's okay, but you can't run forever, right? You have to stop. You have to slow down. You have to actually rest. And so sometimes just the sensitivity of, of um, knowing what the Spirit is asking of you, and for, for me this morning, it felt like the Spirit was asking us to just to rest on this text, to settle in on it. And so for whatever that, that means for you, like maybe you just need to hear that word, right? That, hey, the pace, like what is the pace? Are you aware of the pace you're running? And maybe you've been running and running and running and running and yeah, it's just time to stop, rest, take a break. Um, I, I had a friend who got a t-shirt that says, be like Jesus, take naps, right? <laughs> Jesus was asleep in the boat a couple of stories ago. Like maybe, maybe uh, a word for you today is, hey, take a, take a nap, rest. Like who, who's rushing you? So we're going to just sit with this text again this morning. And so um, this is, you know, our, our series looking through Matthew 8 and 9 could just could be titled Jesus is Awesome. You know, these are the stories we've covered. Jesus, everywhere he goes, every life he touches, their life gets, gets better. It, people are transformed in really amazing ways. Jesus is awesome, right? So, you know, Jesus cleanses a man who has leprosy. He's, he's helpless. He can't change himself. He's separated from community, and Jesus touches the man and heals him, cleanses him. Uh, Jesus healed this Roman centurion's servant and uh, didn't even have to be present. He just spoke a word, and the servant was, was made whole. Uh, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, just note, Peter never asked for that miracle. Uh, I'm just, just kidding. Nobody, nobody liked the mother-in-law joke. Okay, on, on we go. Uh, Jesus calms the storm and saves his disciples. Like, Jesus has authority even over the wind and the waves, over creation. I mean, Jesus is awesome. Everywhere he goes, people are restored and made whole. And yet, you catch, even in this story that we just read, there is this thread of underlying opposition to Jesus. Did you hear that? Like, the, the religious leaders are opposing Jesus. And if you read Matthew's gospel, like, maybe you're just going to sit down sometime and um, you know, it's not football season yet, so you got like, you got all Sunday afternoon, and you're just gonna, like, I'm just going to read a gospel. I'm going to read the gospel of Matthew, which is an awesome practice to do. It takes a couple hours, you just read it through. And um, you'll find, like, as Jesus is awesome, there is this incredible opposition to him that, that begins to grow. And so that's kind of in the subtext here. There are people who are pushing back against the things that Jesus is wanting to do. In fact, you know, um, the religious leaders say this. They say, this fellow is blaspheming. That Jesus looks at this man who's lame, and he's been carried to, to Jesus by his friends, and Jesus sees his need, as we talked about last week, and says to him, your sins are forgiven. Wow, that's, I mean, such good news to know, like, your sins are forgiven. But the religious leaders look at him and say, man, this fellow is blaspheming. They don't even, like, use his name. Right? The, even the, the phrase, this fellow, like if you read it in the original language, it's a derogatory term. Like, this schmuck, 
is blasphemy. And, and what's blasphemy? It's you're, you're defaming God. You're somehow taking credit for something only God can do. He's claiming God's authority for himself. They refuse to recognize that Jesus is anything more than just this fellow. Even in light of all of these amazing things that Jesus has done. Are you with me? That makes sense. You, you see that. So there are these two groups of people. There are the groups of people who receive Jesus' presence as this gift and, and receive his healing touch and word in their life. And then there are those people who, no matter what Jesus says or does, they are opposed to him. And they, and they push him aside. Craig Keener uh, says it this way. He says, Matthew may warn that speaking for God usually invites opposition. We should know this. Especially from others who wrongly suppose that speaking for God has been their role. Right? So there are religious leaders who say, like, that's, that's our job. We are the ones who speak for God. And Jesus is out there, you know, doing God's work, and they're threatened by it. And I think this leads to, like, a really important, very practical thing for us is never settle for a middleman in your relationship with God or middle woman in your relationship with God. That God designed you and designed me, all of us, to have this firsthand connection with our creator, a firsthand relationship, which means that a pastor who stands up in front and teaches is not speaking for God. Right? Or a leader or a worship leader. Like, we're not speaking for God. We are not the mouthpiece of God. The only thing we're doing is we're standing as fellow, like, brothers and sisters listening for the voice of God together. Does that make sense? Like, sometimes we can, we can um, man, I have this pastor that I really love, and I listen to him or her, and I substitute that for the voice of God. And, and actually, like, I neglect the incredible gift that is this firsthand, one-on-one encounter with the living God. Are you with me in this? This is what God wants for us. Like, not, not to have some, some person standing in the middle. Um, how many of you would rather um, be in a group of people who are sitting around the same table or would rather just meet on a Zoom call? Any Zoom call? I won't make you raise your hand if you want a Zoom call. What if you... Um, I, I love the Avett Brothers... They're like my favorite band in the world. I don't know if you know the Aver Brothers. They're fantastic. If you don't know them, they sh- you should. Um, but if I was given the choice of watching the Aver Brothers on YouTube, watching even a live concert on YouTube, or being in the front row at an Aver Brothers concert, I mean, I could be like six inches from the screen watching the concert or being in the front row. Now, I'm too old. I would be in like row 40 because row one would be too loud. I would need earplugs or something. Um, what would I choose? Being in the room. Why? Because the first-hand experience is way better than the mediated experience through a screen. And I can promise you that whatever, however good that preacher is that you, you listen to, maybe not Sunday mornings, but throughout the week, or, or however good that, that teacher or whatever is, they are a poor substitute for what happens when your heart connects with the Spirit of Jesus speaking to you. Like, allow Create space in your life for Jesus to meet, to speak one-on-one, and not to, not to settle for, for some person in between. Now, so the people who were tasked to speak for God, uh, the religious leaders, they were, they were super upset with Jesus. And the reason was because there was already a system in place for, for God to work. 
There was already, like you read the Old Testament, and there was a system in place, a very elaborate system for people to encounter the presence of God. And at the center of that religious system was a building, and the building was called the temple, right? So, like, if you were a Jew or if you lived in Jesus' day... Um, and you wanted to meet with God, you would go to the temple. This is, this is like the house of God. The presence of God was said to live within the holy of holies there at the center of the temple. And so we don't live in temples. Like, or we don't live in temples. We don't live in a world with temples. Like, right? You don't you know, go to a temple down the street or pass them on your way to work or anything like that. And so it can be hard for us to, to really grasp how, how important this was. Um, how, how absolutely uh, much of a big deal this was. The temple in Jerusalem was the place where heaven and earth overlapped. Like if you wanted to have an encounter with heaven, you, you went to the temple. It was the epicenter of God's presence on earth, and it was sacred space. So if you wanted to meet with God, you had to go to the sacred space. So let's say you wanted to have your sins forgiven. You did something, um, and you, like, let's say you, you cheated your neighbor in a business deal, right? You, you were trading something, and um, you're, you're trading your grain because, you know, it was this, like, give and take, uh, you know, bartering society. And you said, yeah, there are 40 pounds of grain in this bag. And you lied. There were, like, 36 pounds of grain in the bag, but you sold it to him as if there were 40 pounds. And then, like, you felt the conviction, right? Uh, like, this, this, was, this is not okay. I cheated my neighbor. And you sinned. You sinned against, um, against God, but against your neighbor as well. And then you needed to make it right. How do you have to make it right? Well, you can pray and, like, repent, confess your sins before God. You can confess to your neighbor, like, I'm sorry I did this. Like, I'm going to pay restitution. I, I blew it. But in order for you to have your sins forgiven, you actually had to go through a process of going to the temple to be restored, to have your sins atoned for. And so um, the process goes a little something like this. You would, you would go to the temple, and Leviticus 4, you can read about this in Leviticus 4. You go to the temple, and you're going to make a sacrifice. So you bring this animal, this young uh, female goat or lamb, and you, you're standing they're at the door, and you're holding your animal, you know, that you're bringing to, to sacrifice for, for your sins. But there are all these other people, right? You're not alone. There are all these other people who are bringing their, um, their animals to sacrifice for their own sins. Like, sin is not this, like, personal, private issue. Like, you're just there. Everybody's like, well, I wonder what he did, right? You know, you, everybody just sees it. And so, you're there. You have this animal, and you take it before the priest, and now this, like, it sounds grotesque because it's so foreign to us, but this was, like, this was um, actually an incredible gift. The priest would, like, lay a hand on the head of this animal, and then the animal would be slaughtered. Now, again, we, we live so disconnected from, like, the death of animals and, and all of that stuff that it feels super grotesque. But for them, this was just ordinary stuff. But you're standing there, and you're watching... This innocent animal die. Like its blood be shed. And, and the life like sort of going out of this, this creature. And all of a sudden you realize that my sin is a pretty big deal. Like my sin, it actually affects the world around me. Because most of the time, like when we sin, 
the enemy makes us believe that this is just, this is just a personal issue, this is a private issue, it's just you know, what I do in my own life, it doesn't affect anybody else. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever had those things where like all of a sudden this thing that you've like been doing in private, this thing, it's, just, it's no big deal, it's still a little thing, it's just me. And then all of a sudden the lights get turned on and you realize how many other people were hurt by this little thing that you felt like, this, is, this was just me. You see, the truth is, like, our actions, they're always connected to relationships with other people. And so this practice of watching this animal, like, it it was this very visceral sense that, like, wow, my sin, it does damage. And all the brokenness I see out there in the world, it actually exists in my heart, in my own heart. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a a Russian Christian novelist, and he spent a long time in Siberian prison camps, innocent guy, uh, as innocent as anybody. But while he was in this Russian prison camp, like wrongfully accused, um, he, he famously said this in, in the book he wrote after he got out. He said, when we look for the line between good and evil, the li- I'm paraphrasing, the line between good and evil doesn't run between countries or political parties or this group or that group, but the line between good and evil actually runs through every human heart. Right? It, it, like, it runs through my heart. It's inside of me. And so this practice of confessing our sins, of, of like bringing this animal, of, of like this animal being an atonement for our sin, it, it reminded them of that. Now, the priest would take some of the blood and would, would like sprinkle it on the altar there at the temple. And then um, it was kind of a barbecue. Like this animal would then like actually be, be roasted. And so it, it kind of sort of turns into, um, you know, a bit of, like, redemption in that. Um, And then Leviticus 4, verse uh, 35 says this. says, in this way, through this animal sacrifice, the priest will make atonement for them and for their sins that they have committed, and they will, and what does the text say? And they will be forgiven. Is that good news? You came up to the temple with a very heavy heart, thinking, like, I, I blew it. I, I hurt my, my spouse, my neighbor, my friend. I, like, I hurt my family. I, I, whatever the sin is you're carrying, and yet you go through this process, and, and it's painful and hard, and there are consequences, but when you walk away, you are, you're forgiven. So you walk away knowing that your sin is dealt with. Like, God makes, makes this provision for his people that they don't have to walk away knowing, like, was that enough? Was that... Like, is God still angry with me? Is, does that thing that happened in my life, like, we, we didn't get rain? Is that God punishing me? Like, all the other people that weren't Israelites, they constantly lived with this sense of, like, maybe God is angry with me. And the people of God, they had this gift to know, like, no, you are forgiven. This is a gracious gift. You are at one with God. And that's what the word atonement means. If you break it into three parts, it just means at one mint. Our sin breaks relationship with God and Atonement makes us at one with God again. I want us to see how good, how good this was. Okay? It's so foreign from us, but I want us to... Can, can you feel what that might be like? Can you feel the gift in that? I'm probably doing a really poor job of explaining this. But I want you to feel... This is forgiveness. Now, every one of those religious leaders who was listening to Jesus and every one of those religious leaders who was upset at Jesus, they would have all experienced this, the goodness of this system. 
They would have all had their own personal stories. Man, I remember that time when I blew it. I remember um, how, like, man, heavy the guilt was on me. And, and I remember, like, taking my animal, like, my best, like, blemishless animal. And I remember standing there at the temple and my heart pounding. And I remember, like, the tears flowing down my cheeks as I watched this animal, um, you know, sort of give their life in place of mine. And I remember... The priest looking at me and saying, your sins are forgiven. I remember walking away feeling joy and like just the lightness of heart, right? So, so it's not just like they're, they're like bound up in the system. They had these personal experiences. Every one of those people would have had that. And so all of a sudden, here's this fellow, this Jesus from Nazareth, whoever he, you know, thinks he is. He walks around and he says to this man, how dare he? Your sins are forgiven. Can you start to empathize a little bit with the religious leaders? This is like, this is a big deal. It's an incredibly big deal. So, um, I want to give just a, a, a quick sort of overview of, of God's plan through Scripture of, of temples and his healing presence. So the title for the sermon is called Jesus Temples and the Healing Presence of God. So, so how does Jesus stand in line with God's heart from the beginning of Scripture? So if you open your Bibles to Genesis 1 and 2, and you look at the creation of the world, right? Um, God creates the, the Garden of Eden. And at the center of this garden is a temple, a house that holds the presence of God. No, right? Where's the temple in the Garden of Eden? Does God, like, build this special sacred space for, for, like, hey, Adam and Eve, if you want to meet with me, you need to come to this special place. Like, no, of course not. Like, God just says, it's all. Like, my presence, God creates the world. He creates all of creation, the cosmos, and then he fills all of creation with his presence. That uh, there is no temple, that all of life, this whole world is sacred. There is no one building, no place we have to go to meet with God. I want us to see that. Genesis 1 and 2, there is no temple. The temple was never in God's design from the beginning. It was not where his heart was. His heart was to say that it is all sacred because God's presence fills it all. And wherever God's presence is, right, that is, that is where we are whole. Now, who are the priests in Genesis 1 and 2? There's no temple because all creation is God's temple. His presence fills it all. And who are the priests? Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. Like, they're, they're priests. They're called to, like, be in relationship with God, to be filled with God's presence, and then to just, like, make his presence known to the rest of the world, to the animal kingdom, to all of creation, that human beings, man, woman, made in God's image, were meant to live and thrive, immersed in God's presence. Okay? So that's, that's God's intention. Genesis 1 and 2, there is no temple because God's presence fills the whole thing. It's all sacred space. Then what happens? You get to Genesis 3. And in Genesis 3, you got people, these the man and the woman, and they start sneaking around behind God's back, or so they think they do. That's what all sin is. It's like, oh, I'll just I'll turn the lights off and God won't see what happens right there, you know? Or I'll, I'll go somewhere else. All sin is like thinking that we're hiding something from, from God who sees it all. So it's kind of ridiculous. And so here's Adam and Eve. They think they're sneaking around behind God's back, and, and, and they want some space that's their own where God isn't involved in their business. 
They want space that's desecrated. Do you know what the word desecrated means? It means it's not sacred anymore. It's desecrated, something like that. It's desecrated. They want space that's like, this is just mine. God doesn't belong here. It's, I'm just going to do what I want in this place. And so they choose absence from God over God's presence. And, and so they choose to reject the temple, all of creation being the temple. And, um, and the consequences of this are absolutely tragic. I mean, they're tragic beyond belief. That without God's presence at the center of our lives, do you know what happens? And the human heart, it just turns murky really quickly. That these people made in God's image who are made to thrive, to, to live in the light of God's presence, they, all of a sudden their hearts turn towards sin and evil and violence and death. And it's just like this, this tidal wave that floods over the world. I mean, it's so terrible. Um, Mark Sayers, he, he writes it this way. He says, their constant companion was no longer God's presence, but instead it was shame, anxiety, and isolation. Human flesh cut off from the presence mutates into something monstrous. Adam and Eve's offspring will thus go out across the world and history with eternity still written on their hearts. The divine imprint of priesthood and worship, a longing for home, in the presence of God that they cannot name and create temples inhabited not by God, but by idols. This is the world we live in, isn't it? This longing for eternity, this longing for God's presence on every one of our hearts, even if we can't name it. And yet we build like these worship structures that aren't filled with God. They're inhabited by, by idols, by money, pleasure, power, fame. And the consequences of a desecrated world are, are terrible. Life without God's presence, human beings become monstrous. And yet, God doesn't abandon his people. So, so Genesis 1 and 2, and then you got the fall and like this desecrated uh, world. And yet, um, God, God just keeps pursuing people. I'm not going to take time to read it, but you should. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's from Genesis 28. There's this, um, this guy, Jacob. And Jacob is, um, if there was ever a schmuck, it was Jacob. Right? He, was, he was a swindler, conniver, a trickster, and, um, and God still is, is with him and blesses him. And so here's Jacob. He's, like, he's fleeing from his brother uh, who he, he thinks is going, to, um, is going to kill him because he said he's going to kill him. And he's, he's out, and the text says this. He's, he's in this like certain place, and that's what it says about the place where he is. He says it's, it's just a certain place. And go to, go to slide 20, Josh, if you would. It says, Jacob has his dream in this certain place. He lays his head on his rock, uh, which is a recipe for crazy dreams. And he, he has this dream where like, it's like an, uh, a portal to heaven, and he sees angels coming up and going down on this, this stairway to heaven. Um, not like that stairway to heaven, a different one. But it says, when Jacob, are we doing okay this morning? <laughs> Everybody need to like stand up, move a little bit or something? Um, okay, so when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, wow, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. And he was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And where is Jacob? Is he in a temple? No, he's just in some certain place out in the middle of the desert. It's like, 
even in a desecrated world, God is still pursuing people. Like it's still, um, all of creation is a place where God can encounter people. And every time God encounters people, every time God's presence breaks through, it's like, wow, this place is sacred because I met God here. Okay, so then, um, then we have uh, the tabernacle. Like in, in Exodus chapter 40, there's this, uh, this tent that God tells the people to build and tells Moses to build. And uh, the word tabernacle just means tent or dwelling. And so it's like this, this portable um, sort of temple-like structure. And it says this, um, Exodus 40 verses 1 and 2. Is, then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. So they do this. They create this special, um, this special place, this special tent where God is going to come and dwell among the people. And it's just a tent until you get to the end of chapter 40. Look at verses 34 to 38. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all, in all the travels of the Israelites, wherever, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until it had lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. So what turned the tabernacle into the place of God? It was the presence of God. It wasn't until the glory of God, like the, the glory just means weight. It was the weight of God's presence that came down on the tabernacle that made it, it turned it from a tent into the place where you meet with God. Without God's presence, the tabernacle was just another tent. And so they're, they're in the tabernacle for a while, and then they, they settle in Israel, they settle in the land, and Solomon, David's son, is like, I'm going to build a temple for God. Um, and so he does, and you can read about this in 1 Kings. The temple's awesome, this massive structure of stone on the outside, and on the inside of the temple, there were like these cedars, like wood cedars, and then there were engravings on the cedars of um, like nature. So there were two, like flowers that were opening and gourds. I don't know why gourds, but you know, like abundance and produce and stuff were on the, uh, the gourd of the Lord, and um, I guess... And then there were like angels and stuff like on. And so you, you can, sorry about that. So you can, you can imagine you walk into this temple and it's like there's wood and there's flowers and there's like angels. And what does it make you think of? The Garden of Eden, right? It's like, wow, abundance and, and trees and all of this stuff. Like the temple was meant to be a reminder of like, hey, God's presence flooded everything in the beginning. And the temple now, it's just a signpost that points to what God actually wanted, right? He, he, it's always pointing back to the Garden of Eden. And the temple was just an awesome building, just a super cool building until you get to 1 Kings 8, verses 6 to 10. It says, Then the priest brought the Ark of the Lord's covenant into the place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place. And the priest withdrew from the holy place, and the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priest could not perform the service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The weight of God's presence comes down on this big, beautiful building and disrupts their like religious services, and it, that's what turns it in. To the temple, right? It's just the tabernacle is just a tent without the presence of God, and the temple is just a building without the presence of God. And so, you can read the rest of the Old Testament, right? The, the temple ends up getting destroyed 
God kind of, he, he turned, the people turn their back. They keep turning their back on him. And so God ends up allowing the temple to be destroyed. And it was, it was so crazy, just damaging to the, like the people because their whole faith was built on the temple, the temple. Good Jews would pray toward the temple. Do you know that? They still do. They pray toward the temple in Jerusalem. Most, like, people think about that with Muslims. Like, if you ask a Muslim friend, like, which way is Mecca, they will know. If you ask a good Jewish friend, like, which way is Jerusalem, they will know because they pray toward the temple because they feel like that space is, is sacred. And so God allows the temple to be destroyed, and their, their faith is kind of crushed with it. They have to figure out, like, how do we worship God in this foreign place? And so eventually there's a temple that is rebuilt, um, about 500 years before Jesus, there's a temple, and, and the temple is not filled with God's presence in the same way. Like the temple in the time of Jesus, like the glory of the Lord had not rested on it in the same way. There were, um, it was just kind of this place of religious service, and, and God was still meeting people, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same. And there was this, this promise. There was a, a, a promise that God spoke to, to these two Elderly people, Simeon and Anna. Are you familiar with their story? Simeon was like this, he was this elderly uh, man, and, and he was hungry for the presence of God to return. He was done with just like the temple being a, a great building with a religious system. And he was hungry and desperate for the glory of God to return. And so he, he was just crying out, spent his whole life just crying out. He would go to the temple and he would cry out for God's presence to return in power. And in Luke, it says this, Simeon, he was moved by the Spirit, and he went into the temple courts when the parents of Jesus, they brought Jesus as a child on the eighth day to the temple um, to do for him what the law required. And Simeon, who's been there with a hungry heart in the temple courts, praying for the presence and the glory of God to return, he recognizes through the Holy Spirit that this child is the fulfillment of that promise. And he takes the child, Jesus, in his hands, and he praises God, and he says, like, I can die in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation. Right? The glory of God was returning in the person of Jesus. And then there's this elderly woman, Anna, who was married for seven years and then lost her husband. She was a widow for 48 years. And it says, like, she was so hungry for God's presence to return that she never left the temple. Not night or day, she just worshiped and fasted and prayed. And this woman, Anna, she, um, she sees Jesus and she just begins to praise God because she sees the fulfillment of all of her prayers in the child Jesus there at the temple. Do you see what's happening? It's like the glory of God is returning uh, to his people and returning through Jesus. Like Simeon and Anna, they're like the new Adam and Eve, right? These people who are not turning their backs on God but are so hungry for God's presence. And when God's presence show up, they, they recognize it. And their, their hearts are filled with joy that this is how God has come. And, and when they saw this, they recognized it was the presence of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who had come into a desecrated world filled with monstrous people. And he had come to make it all sacred again. That he had come to heal and restore that Jesus is the one who would, in the end, would allow himself to be sacrificed. Like he would allow himself to be sacrificed 
And through his death, he would make atonement for the sins of all people. And the curtain in the temple that separated God's presence from a desecrated world would be torn into, and it would allow God's presence to again flood and fill God's good world. See, these sacred spaces, the tabernacle and the temples, at best, At best, they were only temporary. They were only ever meant to be temporary. They were like signs planted, sacred signs planted in a desecrated world to say it's not always going to be like this. God hasn't abandoned you. He's not giving up on you. These signs, the tabernacle and the temple, they were always pointing to the promise that someday God will come again and he will fill his world again. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this of this promise of God, of this longing of the human hearts of people like Simeon and Anna, that he is God's presence so that wherever he goes, whatever certain places he goes become sacred places because he is the presence of God. So on that day when those people bring that lame, uh, paralyzed man to Jesus and he looks at him and he, he says, son, take heart, like rejoice because today your sins are forgiven. Jesus can say that Because he's 90 miles from the temple in Jerusalem, but he is the presence of God, right? He is the presence of God. The temple was a sign that points to Jesus. And so he can look at this man and he can say, your sins are atoned for. You are one with God. Get up, take your mat, go home. You are one with God. See, the temple was never God's design. And today, it's like for for Christians, right? The temple. I was at the temple in Jerusalem a couple of years ago. Carmen and I were there. Um... And I, it was like the, the weirdest experience. It was like such an empty experience. Because it was like, wow, this is cool. I mean, this, this is super cool. This space. But God doesn't live in there. And like there are people who are like, wow, like the, the temple, right? And maybe the temple will be rebuilt. Like a temple is redundant. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. Because God's presence doesn't live in temples that are built by human hands. But you know what was most thrilling to me? Um, before I went, I'm like leading this trip to Israel and stuff and teaching. And I remember reading these words from uh, Neil Armstrong. You remember who Neil Armstrong was? He's the first dude to walk on the moon. And you remember what he said as he stepped out onto the moon for the first human being to walk on the moon that we know of? Um, was one small step for man. Anybody? One giant leap for mankind. When Neil Armstrong went to the temple, in Jerusalem, and, and he went to the southern steps of the temple, and, and he asked his guide, is there any place around here where Jesus would have certainly been? And he's like, right here on the southern steps of the temple. All the rest of it has been torn down, rebuilt, all that stuff, but the southern steps of the temple are like, they're the layer. This is where Jesus would have, would have walked. And Neil Armstrong stepped on the steps, and he said, now this is more thrilling to me than stepping on the moon. Why? Because it wasn't the temple. It had nothing to do with the temple. It had everything to do with the presence of God in Jesus. Like Jesus is the very presence of God. <clears throat> there is, um, I'm, I'm going to, there's this promise in Ezekiel 47. It's, it's my favorite text, and I, I, we don't, I'm not going to take time to, to read the, the thing. But it's, read Ezekiel 47. It is this, Dennis says read it. Okay, thanks, Dennis. Okay. It's so, it's so powerful. The prophet Ezekiel says, he, he, he sees this vision 
And the vision is of the Temple Mount. And, and he sees this river that represents God's presence trickling out to the east side of the Temple Mount. Are you familiar with this story? It's, it's so, so powerful. And so he, he sees in this vision, like, there is God's presence, right? The temple, the temple, it symbolizes God's presence. And there's the holiest of holy places at the center of God's presence. And, and if you want to go be in God's presence, you have to go to the temple. Like, that's where you got to go. But Ezekiel sees something different. He sees God's presence like this stream of water, healing water, coming out the east side of the temple. And it flows out of the holy place, out of the temple. And and it begins to flow to the east, to the east of Jerusalem. And it, it's like, as the first time he sees it, it's just like a trickle of water. And then it flows, you know, a little distance. And it's like, wow, he's like, I'm, I'm ankle deep in this water from God's presence. And then he goes a little bit further, and now he's knee deep. And then he goes a little bit further, and now he's like waist deep in it. And now he goes further, and like now he has to swim in, in this water that is flowing from the temple into God's presence. And then here, here's what it says. Um, and then he led me back. The angel leads him back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on either side of the river. Like trees had just sprung up from this healing presence of God that is flowing like a river out of the temple. These trees are on either side of the river. And the angel said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. Do you know what Arabah means? Desert. Where does the healing presence of God go? To the desert. To the place where nothing lives. To the place where it's dry and parched and arid. And when it enters the Dead Sea, do you know what happens? When it empties into the Dead Sea, the salty water where nothing can live becomes fresh. The healing presence of God, it doesn't stay in the temple. It flows into the desert, into the places of our lives that feel most arid and most barren and most lifeless and most dry and, and just most dead. And the healing presence of God flows there. And when it flows into the Dead Sea, to the place where things are so salty that there is nothing that could possibly live in that place, you know what happens when the healing presence of God goes there? The Dead Sea becomes alive. The salt water becomes fresh, and there are swarms of living creatures that now live wherever this river flows, and there will be a large number of fish because the water flows there, and it makes the salty water fresh. So where this river flows, everything will live. Verse 11, but the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. The tree, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on the banks of the river, and their leaves will not wither, and nor will the fruit fail. And every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them, and the fruit will serve as food and their leaves for healing. Do you, do you see the image that God gives Ezekiel? And this is who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't say, like, if you want to meet me, go to the temple. He says, look, the temple's coming to you. God's presence, it is coming to you, and it is right in front of you. And in those places of our lives where we feel most arid and, and dead and lifeless and desecrated, like that's where the healing presence of God flows. And do you know what happens when the presence of God flows into those places? It becomes alive. 
There's nothing else that can make us alive. There, there, are, no, there are no idols, there's no money, pleasure, power, fame that can make dead things alive. But the presence of God is our only hope. And wherever the presence of God is, that, that is um, these certain places where we encounter God. Like this is, this is where healing lives. So, what does it look like for you to prioritize God's presence in your life? Like to, to say, to like prioritize it. So you have the unbelievable privilege, a privilege that for, before the time of Christ, no one could have dreamed of, of walking into the holiest of holy places at any moment of the day, any certain place you are, whether it's right here or just like Jay reminds us, where do you see Jesus? Like that you have the privilege of encountering the presence of God at any moment throughout your life. And there are no barriers you have to cross except the barriers of your own heart, your own intention, your own like sin and turning from sin. Like how do you prioritize the presence of God? And I, I get like sometimes, um, you know, you do a family meal. Uh, we just did this the other day, so I won't, I won't point names. But we were like the big family gathering. And it's like, okay, well, who's going to pray? Well, not me. You know, one of the kids is going to pray. It's like, oh, not it, not it. You know, last hand in the middle has to pray. It's like, do you realize like, what we're doing? We're talking about like having a conversation with the God of the universe. And we just like get ushered into the most holy place. Like what does it look like to prioritize the presence of God? Because without God's presence filling our lives, we have nothing to offer. Do you know what a church is without the presence of God? It's just a group of people. To prioritize the presence of God in our lives, it is the most important thing. And the question is like, do we want God's presence more than we want anything else in our lives? Because, see, if we want to allow swampy, stagnant areas to live in our lives, God will allow that too. God won't, like, he won't push into those places if we don't allow. Like, we have to open up and say, like, God, there's, there's like, this salty, swampy place in my life or in our community. Or in the, like, and we have to, we have to um, want God's presence more than we want anything else. And so, God, we, we tell you, Today, Lord, that we, we want you and we need you and we long for you. God, I pray that you would, you would bring hunger to our hearts for your presence, just like Simeon and Anna, who just faithfully like, looked to you and, and waited on you. God, I'm sorry that, that so many times I, I just I miss the gift that is your presence available and, and I pray that even today that you would open our eyes to the, to the goodness of this gift that you have given to us. That as we gather and as we sing these songs, as, as you um, put words on our lips, words of worship and praise and celebration, God, that those words would be so powerful that they would move and stir our hearts. God, we need you. Like as a people, as a community, we need your presence. It is our only hope. Thank you, Lord that you give it generously. Thank you that your living, uh, living water it flows into even the dead places of our lives. We receive it. We receive it today. We thank you, Lord. Amen.